ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, coming to you from Gadigal Land. Today, rehab for your new knee. It can work at a distance. And can knee work work to help prevent a new one? Your child has a prolonged cold. It might be sinusitis. When are antibiotics worth taking? A potentially dangerous electrical problem with the heart, which might show up in childhood or adolescence with an unusual blackout. And trying to make major surgery safer by sending you off for a pre-operative assessment by a physician. It's what many surgeons do in the hope of having you in as good a shape as possible before the operation. A huge Canadian study suggests counterintuitively that it can do the opposite. One of the researchers was Dr. Weiwei Bekeleg, who's at the University of Ottawa. Oh, thank you very much for having me on the program. This study, we'll get to how you did it in a minute, but I mean, I can't not just ask you the headline first. I mean, it's counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. You've got worse right. outcomes with pre-operative mm-hmm. medical consultations. You think this is a really good thing to do? Have a, an assessment by a physician before you go into a major operation and it comes out worse. What's going on? Yeah, so the study results weren't very surprising to the authors because there was a similar study performed about 10 years ago, also using administrative database in Ontario, and they found a similar result. So it wasn't entirely surprising to us, but it's just a little disappointing that after all the guidelines that have changed in the last 10 years about preoperative practice, that this is still the result we got. It's a common practice in Australia by surgeons who want to do the right thing. They'll send Mm -hmm. particularly their older patients off to see a physician for a proper checkup Mm -hmm. and so that the anaesthetist can be reassured that there's nothing hidden there and everything's going wrong. Just tell us how you did the study what happened, and then we'll get to the results and analyze why it didn't work out the way, well, the general public might have thought it would work. So we used an administrative databases collected from 14 million Ontario residents. We included the type of surgery people had and their medical history. So we matched patients based on age, sex, income, as well as the type of surgery they're having and their medical comorbidities, including things such as coronary artery disease, congestive heart failure, and kidney disease. So we achieved two very well-matched groups patients who had preoperative consultation with a physician versus those without a consultation. And we compared 30-day mortality and as well as one-year mortality and inpatient heart attacks as well as stroke and 30-day health system costs between the two groups. What were the reasons why people didn't have their preoperative assessment? Because they could be a different group. We thought that the patients who did not have the preoperative consultation might have been less comorbid and less complex, and that's why they didn't have the consultation. But even after matching for these characteristics, we still found you know, differences in outcomes between the two groups, which suggests that there is actually more at play in addition to the patient's medical complexity. What were the differences in terms of outcomes? The group that received preoperative consultation had slightly higher 30-day mortality after surgery. And the secondary outcomes included mortality at one year and stroke during the inpatient stay, as well as mechanical ventilation during their hospital admission. All of those outcomes had slightly higher prevalence in the consultation group, which to some can be very surprising. When you say slightly, was it statistically significant? Yeah, it was statistically significant. Okay, so what was happening in the consultation, if this relationship is real, and now it's the second study to show it, what was happening in, mm-hmm. in the consultation 
that could have led to worse outcomes? So we found that in the consultation group, people were getting more tests done. So people were getting more echocardiograms. They were getting more cardiac stress tests as well as coronary angiograms. And they were also getting prescribed more beta blockers preoperatively. All of those practices were advised against in the guidelines, in the most recent preoperative guidelines. So we think that perhaps the tests that were done preoperatively led to delay in time-sensitive surgeries and the preoperative prescription of beta blockers might have increased the risk of stroke and mortality that have worn out by previous studies. Our hypothesis that the increased testing preoperatively and increased prescription rate of beta blockers might both have contributed to the worse outcomes. And what about the surgery itself? In Australia, if you're going to go for a knee replacement or a hip replacement, many orthopedic surgeons will send you for a preoperative assessment. You know, it's major, your rehabilitation is going to be tough. Cardiac surgery often will get you a, a consultation with a cardiologist if you haven't already had one. What was the relationship with the actual surgery? So we grouped the surgeries into three groups. So one group being the vascular surgery, including peripheral vascular bypass, carotid endarterectomies, and abdominal aortic aneurysm repair. So that's one group. And we had a orthopedic group, which included your knee and hip replacements. And the general surgery group included such surgeries as large bowel resections and liver resection. We found no difference in outcomes between the three surgical groups. I mean, the whole issue of operative outcomes, and I should declare an interest here is that I did chair a meeting recently on perioperative outcomes. But if you look in Australia, in South Australia, they've shown that intensive involvement in people around the operative period, so in other words, the day before, the day of surgery, the day or two after, saves lives, saves hospital beds, and actually makes a huge difference because there is a significant burden of illness and death after surgery that is preventable. I take it that you have not included that perioperative period in this study. Correct. We only looked at preoperative consultations. We didn't look at postoperative medical consultations and follow-up. And I suspect postoperative care is probably where we make the most difference. And just finally, what about blood transfusions and your iron levels? One of the common things that happens in Australia, or people say should happen, is that sometime mm. out from your surgery, you have your haemoglobin measured to see whether you're anemic and your what are called your iron stores. In other words, are you borderline in terms of becoming anemic? And if so, then going on iron prior to your operation does prevent blood transfusions and the risks of those. Mm-hmm. Have we got any data on that? No, we didn't have granular data like that. So where does that leave surgeons and patients? Mm-hmm. Have we got any idea at all from this research what's the right thing to do? I think the research shows that the routine preoperative consultation we are doing captured in this study shows that it probably doesn't change postoperative outcomes. We think that the key to improving preoperative medical consultation is actually incorporation of a multidisciplinary team and focusing more of a comprehensive geriatric assessment because there's good evidence in the literature that a comprehensive geriatric assessment, including you know medical specialists and pharmacists and physiotherapists and social workers, when we work together as a team, we're in a better position to improve outcomes for patients. We're not saying preoperative medical consultation should not exist. We just think that this is a good chance for the preoperative medical providers to come together and discuss how we can improve our processes and improve patient outcomes. Thank you very much for joining us. It's uh, fascinating. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. Dr. Weiwei Bekeleg is a general internist at Ottawa Hospital and University. And this is The Health Report. 
You don't want a child to have antibiotics if they don't need them. There's the risk of bacteria developing drug resistance, and then there are the effects on the bugs in the bowel. One reason for prescribing antibiotics is when the child has persistent cold symptoms, like a runny or blocked nose, a cough, and perhaps face or head pain. It could be a sinus infection, sinusitis. And the temptation for the GP is to open the script pad, or its electronic equivalent, since sinusitis can be caused by bacteria. But like sore throats and sore ears, antibiotics might at times be unnecessary. Another reason that antibiotics are used is the colour of the nasal discharge. That's why US researchers conducted a randomised trial in children with a diagnosis of sinusitis. They were aged between 2 and 11 to see which kids might benefit from antimicrobial treatment. The lead author was Nader Sheikh, who's Professor of Paediatrics at the Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh. Thank you for having me. You better just describe what acute sinusitis is. So sinusitis is a complication of a common cold. So first you get a virus from somebody else who sneezes on you and this goes into your nose and your sinuses are connected to the back of your nose and you get a viral infection that messes up everything. And after that, you're prone to getting a bacterial super infection and sinusitis is that instead of getting better after a week, you get worse. With cheek pain and head pain. Yeah. So because it's a bacterial overgrowth from a virus infection, GPs have been saying, well, we should be giving antibiotics for it. So it's a common reason for antibiotics. Even though sinusitis is not the commonest thing that happens after a cold, it does occur. Yeah, some colds just last longer than a week. Frequently, that's the case. You can get another cold or one cold can just drag on. So we never really actually know who has a bacterial infection because we have nothing to look at on exam. We sort of go in the room and for ear infection, we can look in the ear. For pneumonia, we can listen to the lungs. But here we have nothing to look at. So we're basically guessing, is this bacterial or not? And we're not very good at guessing that. And it's very frustrating for the physician and for the patients. That's what sort of led us to this study. Because you're running blind. Yes. So what was the study that you did? Yeah, we had 500 children. We put half of them on antibiotics and the other half got randomized to placebo, which is basically no antibiotics, but looks the same. And uh, we followed their symptoms over 10, 11 days. That was the main part. But the more important part in my mind was that we had two groups of patients to start with. We had those who had bacteria in their nose. So we tested for bacteria using a swab, just like we do for COVID. We tested for bacteria that caused sinusitis. So we had one group, about half the patients had these bacteria, half the patients didn't. And if we look at the results split in that way, like in the patients who had no bacteria in their noses, that placebo and antibiotics resulted in the same symptom trajectory. So patients didn't benefit if they did not have bacteria in their nose. And in the patients who did have bacteria, there clearly was a benefit. Patients got better two days faster. We basically did two randomized trials, in essence. We did one in the group of children who had bacteria in their noses and one other trial in children who did not have bacteria in their noses. And the results were different. In the children who had bacteria, there was a clear benefit of antibiotics. In the children who didn't have bacteria, there was no benefit. Previous studies had shown that antibiotics work overall a little bit for sinusitis, but we were trying to ask who can we not give antibiotics to, and they do fine. So how long did they have the antibiotics for? They had it for 10 days. And the outcome was disappearance of symptoms? Right. Parents completed a symptom diary every night. Now, the problem for the general practitioner, the family practitioner, is you've got a sick child with a sore face who's miserable and a parent who's miserable, and you don't get the result back for a couple of days from this test. 
what do you do? Right. So there are a few things that can be done. Like Just like we test for COVID with the PCR, these bacteria are, are easy to test for, which is not part of the usual panel of stuff we already have that we test for. So this would have to be added to the panel, but it could be easily done. Also, there are rapid tests for at least one of the two bacteria, and the other one could have rapid tests developed. So right now, the practitioner is sort of in a bind because they have to ask whether a PCR is available for this bacteria. But in the future, we're hoping that bedside tests can take over. And just like we diagnose strep throat, the child comes in, we swab the throat, we see if there's strep. If there isn't, we assume it's viral. Here, we would do the same. We would swab the nose. We would have a bedside rapid test, and we would treat only patients who have these bacteria. And was there any, was this a question a parent would ask, is was there any harm, if you were treating it blind, was there any harm in using the antibiotics? We sort of don't fully understand all the harms associated with antibiotics, but studies have shown that on a population level, you get increased resistance to the antibiotics you're giving. So that will not work the next time in that child or in another child who's close to that child. Also, the effects on the gut microbiome, the gut bacteria, it kills not only the bad things in the gut, but it also kills the good things in the gut. So that could have some ramifications for a while, for months. The other thing that doctors and parents often focus on is the colour of the discharge from the nose. And if it's yellow, people think, oh, gosh, this is terrible. We really do need antibiotics. Right. Or the more green it is. I'm sorry to say this on air, particularly if people are eating. But um, I should have given a warning. But the, um, <laughs> was there any relationship with the colour of the mucus coming from the nose? No, we tested that formally and we found that there was no difference in the colours. It really doesn't mean much as far as antibiotic use goes. You could have clear nasal discharge and need antibiotics, and you could have green nasal discharge and not need antibiotics. So mm. it doesn't really matter at all. Snot color is irrelevant. So finally, right. Nader, what's the um, bottom line for parents listening? I think parents should discuss a treatment with their primary care provider or their GP because it's not as straightforward as we thought. About half of the children who have prolonged cold symptoms don't have a bacterial infection and don't benefit from antibiotics and they're probably harmed by it. So parents should ask the doctor how sure they are. Is there any other way they can do a test that could confirm it and do a shared decision-making with the practitioner as to what they want to do, depending on how sick the child is, how long they've been waiting and, and in, those kinds of things. And in the absence of rapid tests, if you're happy to wait for a day, 36 hours, then get a nose swab done and then make a decision. Right. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Nader Sheikh is Professor of Pediatrics at the Children's Hospital Pittsburgh. And again, apologies for throwing some nasal discharge at you. Most of the time when a child faints, it's what's called a vasovagal episode, when the blood pressure and heart rate drop, often associated with pain or something unpleasant. Vasovagal faints are really only a worry when they cause an injury. More rarely, but also more importantly, children who black out can have something more sinister going on, such as an abnormality of the electrical conduction system in the heart, and it's a condition called congenital long QT syndrome. The name comes from the names of the electrical waves of the heart on an electrocardiogram, the ECG. Americans call it an EKG. And in long QT, the distance on the ECG from the Q wave to the T wave is abnormally long. The problem is that some kids with congenital long QT are at increased risk of a life-threatening cardiac event later in life. A study of 3,000 people followed for about 40 years 
suggests that an important clue is what triggers a faint or a blackout. This might also help parents recognise that congenital long QT is a possibility and have their child checked, especially if they're about to take on competitive sports. The research leader was Ilan Goldenberg, who's Professor of Medicine and Cardiology at the University of Rochester in New York State. So congenital long QT syndrome is an inherited heart disease that are associated with abnormalities in the channels that conduct ions of the heart. So if you look at the heart, it appears normal, but there's a microscopic abnormality, and this increases the risk of sudden cardiac death in children and young adults. And there are also important sex differences because after the onset of adolescence, there is an effect of sex hormones on those ion channels. And women appear that increased likelihood of experiencing life-threatening cardiac events compared with males. On the other hand, boys experience more increase in the risk during childhood. So this can be a lethal problem. It occurs at a frequency of 1 to 3,000 or 5,000 people, and it's a genetic disorder. And you can diagnose it from the electrocardiogram? Yeah, just from the surface EKG, you can diagnose the disease in about 75% of the people. And drugs can induce this as well, can't they? Yeah, drugs can accentuate the disease in people who have it. Very common drugs on the market, like antibiotics, if people are predisposed, they can increase it because those drugs also affect the same ion channel in the heart. So what was the purpose of this study? This study was a collaboration between Mayo Clinic, Europe and Japan, and we had about 3,000 children, young adults, who have congenital long QT syndrome. And this lethal effect can be manifest in two ways. One of them is a warning sign in which children and young adults just lose their consciousness. They have a brief episode of syncope. And the other presentation is that those patients can have sudden cardiac death and die suddenly. But we wanted to focus on those who have those warning signs to identify who are at the highest risk and how can we treat them better. And there are three main types of long QT syndrome. Type 1 is more when you do exercise, when you run or swim. Type 2 is more arousal, when you watch a football game and you get stressed. So in the middle of the night, there's an alarm clock. A lot of people even die suddenly when there's an alarm clock, so you have to take it out. In type 3, in those patients of type 3, they die suddenly, even without any warning. They don't have syncope before. And we wanted to see what signal can help us stratify the patient and treat them better. What did you find? We followed those patients from their birth through age 40, 50, 60 years. And what we found was something interesting. First of all, in type 1 patients, what those adrenergic events who cause syncope, for example, if they went and did exercise and they ran or swam, and after that they lost consciousness, they had a sevenfold increase in the risk of sudden death within the next few years if they were not treated appropriately. In type 2, there was fainting in about two-thirds of the patient, but most of those fainting even occurred during rest, as opposed to type 1, in which it occurred during exercise. And also in type 1, their risk of dying suddenly was very, very high. In type 2, it was intermediate, and in type 3, as I mentioned, they just did it without warning, without fainting before. So what's the clinical implication for this? Swimming is a common cause of cardiac death in men. Are we missing people with long QT here? I think that patients who go for competitive swimming or exercise, they can be easily do an EKG, and then you can diagnose the disease, and this is a good screening for long QT syndrome. And if it appears to be normal, they can do whatever they need to do. Among patients who do have a prolonged QTC, 
and this is one of the implications of the study, they are good therapies today. They are beta blockers that actually counter those adrenergic activity. And we identified that patients who are experienced syncope during exercise, swimming, or running, were treated with the right beta blockers, their risk of sudden cardiac death was very low subsequently. So the main implication is to identify those patients and treat them appropriately. And again, you have to go to an expert because there are two types of beta blockers, and only one of them takes them appropriately. If you take the other type, it doesn't cause such a good effect and protection. And which is the type of beta blocker that works? It's called non-selective. Because this is another important implication. This is a manageable disease. You can prevent sudden death by simple medical therapy, and you can let the kids, the young adults, they can continue to exercise. And I assume there are people walking around who've got long QT and don't know it. Yeah. We see that in the news. There are patients that are competitive sports players in football, in basketball, and they die suddenly. There are different types of genetic disorders. There's hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We focus on these genetic disorders that even if you look at the heart and you do an echocardiogram, everything appears normal. There's just something microscopic in the flow of the ion channel inside the cells of the heart. Now, I remember a study a few years ago when there were a series of sudden cardiac deaths on the field. And there was a question, should every young athlete, even at school level, have an ECG? And the conclusion was, no, it would create more anxiety than benefit. What's your view on that? There are differences in opinion between Europe and the US. In Europe, it's required because there are certain types of genetic disorders that are more common, especially in Italy. In the US, you may be right because the fact is that it can lead to unnecessary testing. But if experts look at the EKG and they identify a specific disorder, those patients should be treated. And I think at least competitive sports, they should undergo a thorough evaluation, including an EKG and an echo, because those patients, those extreme athletes, should know in advance if they have a predisposition for sudden cardiac death, because this can be very lethal. And what do you do about the child or even adolescent who faints? And those, like I said, they have a warning. They should also undergo a very thorough evaluation. And this can be very easily diagnosed and treated. Ilan Goldenberg is Professor of Medicine and Cardiology at the University of Rochester in New York State. There are around 70,000 knee replacements a year just in Australia. That's a lot of people having a major procedure which needs post-operative rehabilitation to get the most out of the surgery. Knee rehab has been controversial because private hospitals like to offer to keep you in for rehab, whereas the evidence suggests you do just as well, if not better, if you go home soon after the surgery. But how to keep up your motivation, especially when there are a few weeks of significant pain? One solution trialled by a group at the University of Sydney is to use digital technologies such as exercise apps, fitness trackers and remote coaching online. Dr. Vicky Duong is a research physiotherapist at the Colling Institute at Royal North Shore Hospital and was the lead author. Welcome to the Health Report, V. Thanks for having me, Norman. So just describe what these people got versus, you know, there was obviously a control because it was a randomized trial. Yep. So in this trial, we wanted to see if a combination of digital approaches, including an activity tracker, exercise app, and health coaching could aid recovery after knee replacement. So participants received a fitness tracker to monitor their steps, their sleep, and active hours. And they also received a personalized exercise plan on an app and fortnightly health coaching sessions where they were able to discuss their progress and goals with a health coach. 
And all of these interventions were remotely delivered as we conducted the trial during the COVID pandemic. And remote is important because people you know, are just as much need, if not more need, for knee replacements in remote areas than in cities. Um, and what outcomes were you looking at? So our primary outcome was pain during the last week at three months. And then we also looked at various secondary outcomes, including physical function, quality of life and activity participation. And what were the results? So at three months, we found that participants had slightly improved pain compared to the control group or usual care. And we also found that participants had improved health quality of life and were more active and getting more sleep. And these findings were maintained at six and 12 months. Now, you're doing several things at once here. They had an exercise app. They had a fitness, a health coach, presumably you know, systematized nagging, and, um, and the fitness tracker, which is like automatic nagging because it's telling you how many steps you've got. Have you any idea which one of those was actually effective or were they all, was it the package? It was the package. So our previous group had done some research finding that there there have been modest improvements in pain and function using sort of a single approach. And so our approach was to combine these and see if it would provide any more benefit. Now, there's increasing an increasing tendency to go the American route, in fact, or even other countries, which is same-day knee replacement. It does your head in to think about it, but you, you basically have a 23-hour admission for your knee replacement and then you go home. And home rehab is probably more effective than hospital rehab. Um, is this applicable? Is this something that could be useful with shorter and shorter hospital stays with knee replacements? Yeah, potentially. Yep. So this, yeah, could potentially be used in people who just have a short rehab stay and then they want a bit more support to get back on their feet. Um, Now, let's shift the focus now, which is not part of this research, but there's an increasing tendency to say, well, not all people who who think they need a re-replacement actually do, or if they do, you might be able to delay it for a, a, a while. And there's a physiotherapy program that... It's supposed to help in terms of delaying the replacement or even preventing altogether. What is that program and do we know how effective it is? So, yeah, that's right, Norman. It's really important for people to know that just because they have knee osteoarthritis doesn't mean that they're going to need a joint replacement in the future. The most important thing that people can do is to stay active using a combination of strengthening, aerobic balance and flexibility exercises, as well as maintain a healthy weight. So a physiotherapist that specializes in musculoskeletal conditions should be able to help you get started. And there's been evidence to show that reducing your body weight by 5 to 10% has shown to significantly improve knee osteoarthritis symptoms. The, the knee pain. But there, isn't there a program that there's a, I think it's a Scandinavian program that, um, that has a specific protocol to it? Yep. So there are some programs available. So I think the one you're referring to is the GLAD program, which is popular in Scandinavia. In New South Wales, we have the Osteoarthritis Chronic Care Program, and that's delivered all through public hospitals. And so it's weight loss. And is the focus on your quads or just the whole lower limb strength? I think all of the lower limb, especially the hip, the glutes, um, and yeah, the quad muscles as well. Well, fascinating in terms of prevention and indeed rehab. Thanks for joining us, Vicky. Thanks, Norman.
Dr Vicky Duong is a physiotherapist and postdoctoral researcher at the University of Sydney. Now, the law report this week is looking at a significant legal and medical milestone. For the first time in Australia, a patient who chose voluntary assisted dying, or VAD, has donated their organs. Former nurse Marlene Bevern, who suffered from an aggressive form of motor neuron disease, died earlier this year at the age of 66. Her decision to donate her organs saved four lives. Here's Dr. Rohit De Costa, the medical director of Donate Life Victoria. The most important thing is that there's clear separation between the decisions and we need to make sure that there is absolutely no coercion and that the decision to donate organs should not influence that decision in any way. And that's really important that Donate Life or our nurses or doctors are only involved after the VAD process has been approved. That's Dr. Rohit DeCosta speaking on this week's Law Report here on Radio National or on the ABC's Listen app. And you've been listening to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. We'll be back next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.